Well, good morning, College Park. Hope that you guys are doing well today. Uh, worship team and tech team and uh, security team and first-hand team, thank you so much for serving today. Uh, we know that it's a, it's a holiday weekend, and so thank you for uh, taking time out of your uh, schedule today just to serve uh, the body. And so we appreciate you every single week, but especially on a, on a holiday weekend. Uh, let's go to Lord in prayer, and then we'll, we'll dive in. God, we give you praise for another week to gather as the people of God. And Lord, we just proclaim to you, Lord, that your word is power. God, that your word is alive and active, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we pray that, that your word would do the work this morning. God, not a fancy outline or charisma, but that your spirit through your word would change us today would encourage us, would exhort us. So we pray in this moment, Lord, would you shape us according to the gospel and the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So raise your hand if you'll be watching uh, the Indy 500 today. So raise your hand. Not a trick question. Not a trick question. Yeah, raise them high. Raise them high. Okay. So it might shock you, but before coming here to Indianapolis last year, I didn't really care about the Indy 500. Yeah, I remember in Ohio, sitting in my living room, kind of flipping through the channels, and the Indy 500 would be on the screen, and it really could not hold my interest. And I know that's um, probably tough to hear from your lead pastor, but it's just a bunch of guys kind of driving around in a circle, if you think about it. And, and so before coming here, um, I didn't really care much for the Indy 500 until last year. Now, last year, I had the opportunity of attending one of the practice rounds with a, a College Park uh, member who attends our campus, and I have to tell you, it was interesting. It was, it was really engaging. It was exciting. I mean, it was really, really loud, but my experience of the Indy 500 was dramatically different when I was with other people compared to when I was by myself in my living room. See, I had access to experiencing the Indy 500 by myself, but there was something dramatically different. There was something special. There was something unique experiencing that event with tons of other people. And I think that's true with other things in our lives. If you think about music for a moment, that when you listen to one of your favorite songs by yourself, it's, it's different than when you're listening to that song with a group of people or maybe even hundreds of people at a concert. Or take the Indianapolis Colts, that you watch the Colts by yourself. It's a different experience when you're, when you're watching that game with a group of friends or when you attend a Colts game with thousands of other people. And I think that difference, experiencing something individually and by yourself compared to with a group of people, I think that is what the author of Hebrews is trying to get at in our passage this morning. But there's something unique, there's something different, there's something special when the people of God experience the presence of God together compared to just by yourself when we're scattered throughout the week. And I think we spend a lot of time talking about our individual personal relationship with God, what it means to experience God's presence as individuals. We spend a lot of time talking about that but maybe not enough time talking about what it looks like when the people of God gather together 
and we experience the presence of God together. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. I have a very uh, basic outline this morning. My first point, uh, as we'll look at the basis of our access to God in verses 19 through 21, the basis of our access. And then point number two, we'll look at the implications of our access to God in verses 22 through 25, the, the implications or the commands of this access. First, a couple of things that you should know about our passage and about this letter of Hebrews. Our passage this morning in verses 19 through 25 is one long sentence in the Greek. So in the original language, this is just one long sentence, and that shows us that everything is connected in our passage, that you can't just take one reality without the other, that this is one main thought that the author of Hebrews is laying out for us, and that's really important. The second thing that you should know about our passage is that there's a corporate emphasis in our passage, that there are 12 references to either us, we, our, or one another, showing that there's a corporate aim to the realities that are laid out in our passage. And I just want to say that these realities that we're going to talk through are true for us as individual followers of Jesus, but there's a corporate emphasis in our passage that we'll look at in just a moment. And then third, last thing I want to point out, that the author of Hebrews is especially concerned about believers falling away. And that's why there's a special emphasis throughout this letter on perseverance. That there are different warnings that the author of Hebrews lays out throughout this letter. And in our passage this morning, he encourages them not to fall away by showing them the benefits of gathering together as the people of God. It's really important to know before we jump in. So let's look at number one, the basis of our access, verses 19 through 21. Put simply, the, the basis and the foundation of our access to God is Jesus Christ. And what I want us to see this morning is how Jesus gives us that access to God. And especially, the, the author of Hebrews kind of uh, puts this in the way of the old covenant and how Jesus fulfills that old covenant and brings the new covenant. Look at verses 19 through 21 with me. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. So in these verses, the author of Hebrews lays out how we have the basis to access the presence of God. And you'll notice verse 19 begins with the word, therefore. And what the author is doing is he's referring to the argument that he just laid out in chapters 8 through 10, where he shows us that Jesus is the great high priest, that he has made this great sacrifice once and for all, that he doesn't need to keep repeating that sacrifice, but it was one time only for all time. And because of that reality, we can have access to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Now, the holy places here refers to the presence of God, that he's referring to the heavenly tabernacle where God's presence dwells. Now, if you're in the first century here reading this as a Jew, your mind is being blown here. Because in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, 
they could only experience the presence of God one time. And it was on the Day of Atonement through one person, the, the high priest. And so the high priest, one time a year, would go into the temple, and after performing the necessary rituals and sacrifices, would go into the holy place in the temple and experience the presence of God. And yet what the author of Hebrews is laying out here is that the people of God, because of what Jesus has accomplished, can actually experience the presence of God at any time. Not just one time of year through one person, but we all can experience and access the presence of God. This is unrestricted, full access. And verse 20 further explains the basis of our access to God. That he says that Jesus has opened up for us, or it could be understood as to make a way that was not there before through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And he's referring to Jesus' body, that what he did on the cross through, through the shed blood of Jesus, through his death, he has opened up a new way for us to experience the presence of God. So not only through his blood, but through his body, through the death of Christ, we can experience the presence of God. And the author says that the curtain, again, he's referencing the old covenant where the high priest would enter the holy place of God through this massive curtain. And so what he's talking about here is that this curtain has been replaced by Jesus. And this is really important for us to know, that the curtain and the old covenant separated the holy presence of God from the sinfulness of his people. And so that curtain was basically this big keep out sign. And yet the author of Hebrews is talking about here is that Jesus has replaced the curtain. And so Jesus doesn't say keep out. Jesus says, come all who are weary that you may find rest, that you can have access to God through Jesus Christ. Again, this is mind-blowing for someone in the first century to read this. And yet not only that, but in verse 21, he says that we have a great high priest, referring to Jesus again, over the house of God. Now the house of God refers to God's household. It's God's people. It's God's church. That Jesus is the great high priest over God's people, the church, and this further instills confidence and gives us authority as we approach God and his presence. And so this access, this is something that we can experience as individuals, but once again, I think there's a greater emphasis here in this passage. There's a corporate aim as we experience the presence of God together as God's house, as God's household, as God's gathered people, that there's something unique and different when we experience God's presence together. And again, we have to remember that for a first century Jew to, to read this and to hear this, that you don't just experience God's presence one day a year through one person, the high priest, but everybody who follows Jesus has access to God's presence. And when the people of God gather together for the sole purpose of experiencing God's presence, it's something unique and something different occurs. That we read this in other New Testament passages, Matthew 18, where Jesus says, where two or more are gathered in my name, he says, I will be there as well. That there's something unique and something different when the people of God gather together and they experience the presence of God. 
And while that's important, and while that's really, really significant, I want to highlight maybe the most important word in these first couple verses. It's the word confidence. That we not only have access to God's presence, but the author of Hebrews talks about having a confidence when we experience God's presence. That we not only can access him, but the author of Hebrews says you need to access and approach him in a specific way. That this Greek word for confidence used in this context can actually mean authority. And so we have authority, we have permission, we have an authorization to enter God's presence because of Jesus. That Jesus obtained that right of entry for his people. And I want to point out again that this confidence is rooted and is based on the objective reality of Christ's finished work that that objective reality of what Christ has done for us should be informing and should be shaping the kind of confidence that we have as we approach God and his presence. The author of Hebrews is saying you can have confidence, but it's not based on you. It's based on Jesus. And I want to point out this morning that if you're here today and you're not a Christian that you're not a follower of Jesus, you have not placed your faith upon Jesus and you've repented of your sins, that you cannot have this type of confidence today, that that you cannot have the, the type of access to God's presence. And the reason for that is because of your sin, that your sin has created this barrier between you and the holiness of God. And just to point out an obvious fact, we, we all have that sin, and yet the difference between Christians and a, and a non-Christian is that Christians have thrown themselves upon Jesus by faith. That we as believers, we've placed our trust, we've placed our faith upon the work and the person of Jesus Christ so that he's taken away our sin, that he's paid our penny, penalty, that he's appeased the wrath of God, and that he's given us his righteousness that covers us so that we can access God and his presence. And so if you're not a Christian, you cannot have that access. But, but I've got good news for you today. That if you're not a Christian, you can become one today. That you can place your faith upon Jesus today. You don't have to wait. That you can have access to his presence today, right now, if you place your faith upon Jesus. And it would be our joy and our delight if you made that decision today to trust in Jesus so that you can have access to his presence with confidence. And yet, if you are a Christian today, this passage really begs the question, how are you approaching the presence of God? Both individually and privately throughout the week, but also as we gather on Sunday, what, what is your posture towards God and his presence? Is it one of confidence? Or is it one of perhaps insecurity that maybe as you approach God and his presence, do you have a a type of of feeling unsure that maybe you don't really know how God's going to receive you or you're not really sure what to say or, or how to engage with God, that maybe you approach God's presence with a sense of embarrassment or shame because of the things that you've done or the, the things that you're wrestling with. If I could just press into that a little bit further, I, 
I wonder if you're, if you're struggling with having a confidence to approach God and his presence, could it be that you're relying more on your performance rather than the finished work of Jesus? Like, could it be that, that you're struggling with confidence because you have to do A, B, and C before you have confidence to approach God and his presence rather than relying on the finished work of Jesus to give you that confidence? Could it be that because of the things that you've done or the things that you're wrestling with, that, that you're kind of struggling to approach God with a boldness and with the authority that's yours in Christ? And that the author of Hebrews is pointing out that you have this confidence if you're in Christ. It's not based on your performance. And for those of us who are parents, I mean, can you imagine if we parented the following way? If we said to our kids, you can't come into our presence unless you did your chores. You can't look me in the eye unless you mow the grass. Or you can't, you can't talk to me unless you do the dishes. See, we don't parent that way. Because our love and our acceptance that we give to our kids is not based on their performance. It's based on their status as being part of our family. And yet I wonder how many of us relate to God our Father in that way where we have to do A, B, and C before we can approach his presence with confidence rather than relying on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And I just wonder how, how much of that lack of confidence is impacting us as believers in, in our private lives and even as we gather as believers. That I wonder how much of that lack of confidence is impacting your prayer life, or your time in the Word, or fathers and dads, as you lead your home, or as we share the gospel, if, if you're struggling with a lack of confidence, how is that impacting even as we gather as a body and we approach God and His presence? See, this is really important to understand that we have this confidence and this boldness and this authorization to approach God and his presence, not because of us, but because of what Jesus has accomplished. And I, I am so thankful for that. I am so incredibly grateful that, that my confidence to approach God is not because of me, it's because of Jesus Christ. So it's a good reminder for us as we approach the Lord on, on the Lord's day, that we approach him with confidence, not based on how we feel, not based on the struggles that we experience, not based on if Tim is going to play our favorite worship song, not based on if the person next to us smiles at us or not, but because of the blood of Jesus, we access his presence together with confidence that Jesus supplies the basis. We praise the Lord for that. So, not only do we have this basis to access the presence of God as the people of God, but there are implications for that. That there are certain things that as we gather and as we experience the presence of God, that we should be doing as the people of God, that we should be experiencing. And so there are implications in the form of, of three commands in this passage that I want to highlight for us. This week I came across an article titled, I Don't Like Going to Church, Why Should I Keep Attending? And this was by a well-known 
uh, Christian publication. Publication is really, really interesting. And it begins this way. I just want to read the first part of this. It says this, Eddie, my name is Lily. I'm 29. I'm single and a Christian. But moment of vulnerability here, I don't like going to church. I used to like going. I got so much out of it, but now not so much. So She must not have donuts like we do here. So she says this. She says, my question is this. Why should I keep attending? Thanks for answering, Lily. So here's the response. This is Eddie. says this, Lily, your vulnerability is going to be really helpful for other people who are afraid to challenge this norm and ask this hard question. So thank you. Here we go. This is his response. This is a well-known Christian publication. It says this, you don't have to go to church. There, you're off the hook. It's not mandatory for your salvation. Plenty of people who love Jesus don't go to church. God won't be angry at you, and your friends and family will get over it and still love you, even if you sleep in on Sunday. So there, you can quit now. In that article, Lily raises a really interesting and important question. Why should I keep attending church? And I wonder, how would you answer that question this morning? It's a really important question, and, and I guarantee most of us, if not all of us, have, have asked that question or have wondered that question, why should I gather with God's people on Sunday? I mean, is there anything unique that takes place as we gather with the people of God compared to just by ourselves, with our Bibles, with Jesus at Starbucks? Is there anything different? Is there anything special and unique when we gather together as the people of God? And my hope is, as we look at these last couple of verses in our passage, that we would be able to answer that question and believe it in our hearts. So let's look at the implications of what we should be experiencing as we gather with God's people. Here's uh, number one, that we need to draw near to God, that this is something we experience together as the people of God. Look with me at verse 22, first command. He says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So he says, let us. Now, who's the us here? In, in the context the us is the people of God. It's the house of God. It's the gathered people of God. And he says that you have confidence, you have the ability to access God's presence together as the house of God. And so he says, because of that, draw near to God. Okay, so that's the command here in verse 22, to draw near to God. And he says, as you draw near to God, do so with a true heart, with full assurance of faith. So in other words, that we are to draw near to God with complete trust, complete devotion, and sincerity. That our assurance of faith comes because of what Jesus has accomplished through his full work of salvation. And ultimately, we draw near to God because we've been cleansed by Jesus. That's what he's getting at, the second half of verse 22. He says, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So what he's saying here is that our hearts 
have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience caused by our sin through Jesus' sacrifice, which is applied to believers. That the cleansing that Jesus provides, it removes the barrier of a guilty conscience that prevents access to God. So that phrase there, that our bodies washed with pure water, we could spend probably the entire rest of our time together talking about what that means, but it most likely refers to baptism, where baptism is this outward sign of an inward reality. And we had the, the privilege of last week of hearing four just incredible testimonies of people proclaiming an inward reality that they've been cleansed by Jesus. So he's saying that your access to God is unhindered, that you have full assurance of that in faith. And so this reality should further shape and inform how we approach God on Sundays when we gather, that we not only have full access with God, that we not only have confidence to access God, but that we should draw near to God as the people of God. And this drawing near, is the, it's this leaning into what God has for us as a congregation. It's this leaning into what God has for us as he's shaping us as the people of God that we should be looking forward to what God has for us as God speaks to us through his word and through his spirit, that there should be this expectation, this longing to hear from God and a, a necessary time of preparation before we gather. It's really important to know that what we do here on Sunday mornings is not random, that we don't just sing a few songs and, and hear a message but this time together is a time where through the Spirit of God and through the Word of God, God is shaping us in a specific way to look more and more like Him so that we can put the gospel on display. And yet it's so easy for us just to not draw near to God when we gather, just to kind of show up and just to exist in this space and not lean into what God has for us. And the same is true. I mean, if you've, if you've ever had a roommate before, whether it's a friend or a spouse, you know exactly what that temptation is like to not draw near to each other and just to exist. That you can be in the same space and yet just exist and not lean into each other, not be intentional, not, not draw near to one another and continue to engage with one another you can just have your separate routine from the other and just exist in the same space. And the same temptation is true for us as the people of God. That when we gather here, it's so easy just to kind of lean back and not draw near to what God has for us with expectation. And so the command here is to draw near to God, to be intentional as we prepare our hearts on Sunday. And so what that means is the implications of this is to be intentional as you prepare your hearts before we gather. And maybe it's, it's taking a few moments before you walk in here and just praying to God just to prepare your heart to be softened for what God has for you and what God has for us as a congregation. That maybe drawing near to God for you is, is just asking the Lord to protect your heart from being distracted with preferences. And I've been there before where you've got something, you've got a, a unique and specific preference 
and something happens, and, and you can become distracted from what God has for you. And I know for me in my own heart, I have to pray, God, protect me to not be distracted from preferences. And even, even asking the Lord, God, what is the specific word that you have for me today and that you have for us as a congregation? That there is a specific call for us as we draw near to God to allow God to shape us as the people of God to be actively engaged as we access his presence together. So not only that, not only do we draw near to God, but we hold fast to the confession of our hope. Look at verse 23 with me. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, the command here is for us to, to hold fast, unwavering, to the confession of our hope. And we're even told how to hold faster. He says, do so unswervingly or unwavering. That this word is, is communicating the idea of standing firm, not easily pushed to one side or the other. And we're not only told how to hold fast, but we're also told what to hold fast to. He says, we hold fast to the confession of our hope. And the confession of our hope is that Jesus is Lord over all, that Jesus has made a way for us. And so we hold fast to the confession of our hope, and that's not just a wishful thinking. So our hope is not just, man, I hope it's sunny out tomorrow, but our hope as believers is a confident expectation based on the faithfulness of God. And so that leads us to the reason why we can hold fast. And I just want to say, just by way of application, that I know that there are some of us who are here this morning, that when you hear that phrase, to hold fast to the confession of your hope without wavering, that because of the circumstances that you're in, that, that that's almost laughable. That because of the circumstances that you are in, that the thought of, of having an unwavering hope is, is so foreign to you because you feel so overwhelmed with stress and anxiety. That perhaps that you're, you're experiencing maybe marital strife or disunity this morning. Or perhaps you've got a, a wayward child and you're trying to navigate that. And so the thought of having an unwavering hope is, is almost laughable because you just feel so overwhelmed. Or maybe you just feel so spiritually dry today or, or consumed with sin. And, and I, just want to, I just want to encourage you today that, that if you're just struggling, if you feel like you're wavering, I just want to draw your attention to the last part of verse 23. That he says, For he who promised is faithful. For he who promised is faithful. That the reason why that we can hold fast is not because we're holding on so tightly, but because of the, the object of our faith, Jesus, is sturdy, and he is faithful, and he is the one that causes us to be unwavering. See, I just wonder, for, for many of us who feel like we're wavering in our faith, and we feel just unsturdy, I wonder if it's because we're so focused on ourselves in our own circumstances, and we're not focused on the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, who is the unmovable rock. 
And what this passage is saying is that he is faithful to hold fast the confession of your faith unwavering for he who promised is faithful. It doesn't say for you are a good Christian, for you are holding on so tightly, or for you are nailing your devotions. No, it says hold fast unwavering for he who promised is faithful that Jesus has demonstrated his perfect reliability and his trustworthiness over thousands of years of keeping his promises, that he's never broken his word, that he's remained steadfast over the centuries to his people. And because that is true, that enables us to hold fast, unwavering, unswervingly, because he is faithful. And the more that we press into Jesus, the more that we realize that Jesus is actually one that's holding tightly to us. That as we hold fast, we are acknowledging our trust and our faith upon Jesus because Jesus is the only one that can keep us unwavering. And so this is the basis of our hope, that this is why we must hold fast, that God's faithfulness is not dependent on our faithfulness. Aren't you thankful for that this morning? That God's faithfulness is not dependent upon our performance. That even when we're unfaithful, God remains true to his promises that he will complete that which he began in us. I'm thankful for that reality. Now, third, the third command, this last implication that because we have access to God, he says this in verses 24 and 25. He says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now he says, because we have full access, he says, let's consider something. Or this could be translated, let us be concerned for, or let us care for. And so he says, let us be concerned about how to stir up one another to love and good works. And that could also be translated to provoke in a positive way. So he's saying, hey, let's be consumed about thinking of ways to motivate one another to love and good works. And again, you kind of feel the corporate nature of this command that you all do this together, that this is not something that you do by yourself in Starbucks. In fact, verse 25, he says, don't neglect meeting together. And that phrase could be translated as gather together. So he's saying, look, don't neglect gathering together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So in other words, he says that this mutual care for one another that should be taking place as the people of God gather will not be sustained unless we meet together regularly for fellowship, for encouragement, for exhortation, and intentionally stirring up in one another how to love and do good works. And in this congregation, in the first century, there were some who were abandoning this. They were forsaking gathering with other believers. And he's saying, look, don't do that. In fact, the author of Hebrews goes as far as connecting 
this idea of neglecting to meet together with other believers with eventually falling away from the living God. That when you take that step of, of not meeting regularly together, you're taking one step closer from walking away from the living God. And so he says, look, provoke one another to love and good works by gathering and meeting together to encourage one another. And I love this. He also supplies the motivation here, the, the sense of urgency. He says, because the day of the Lord is approaching. That the day in which Jesus will return again, where he will gather his people up, that something that we've been looking at the last six weeks in our heaven series. He says, look, the, the day is coming when you, the people of God, will not have the opportunity to be the people of God on earth. That the day is coming where you won't need to stir up in one another love and good works. You'll just be able to do it in heaven. You won't need to draw near to God. You'll be in the presence of God. And so as the day is drawing near, we don't have much time left. Let's be the people of God here on this earth. And I love how one commentary put it. He said, the gathering of God's people anticipates the final ingathering of God's people. He says the assembly is the early counterpart to the heavenly congregation of God's people. And that's something that we've been looking at as the last six weeks, that the closest thing for us in this life to experience heaven is the gathering of God's people. And as we gather together, we get to experience a glimpse of heaven together as we operate as the people of God. That as we encourage one another and as we stir up in one another love and good works. And so why should we gather together? So to get back to, to Lily's question, why should we meet regularly and attend church? Well, I think I'd answer it this way. I just, I just wonder if, if you're wavering in your faith, that if you're struggling to draw near to God, if you're struggling to, to have assurance of faith and you're not meeting regularly with God's people, what do you do? Where do you go? How do you conjure that up? Who is holding you accountable if you're failing to draw near to God? If you're, if you're failing to love and do good works, who is stirring that up in you as you're meeting with yourself at Starbucks with your Bible? Like, how does that happen? How does that take place in your life without gathering with God's people? See, there are unique and special and a different kind of benefits when you gather with the people of God that you can't possibly experience on your own privately. That we've already talked about the, the type of experiencing God's presence together corporately. And, and man, when, when you wake up on a Sunday morning, and just to be frank, when, when you don't feel like coming to church on Sunday, and you drag yourself out of bed on Sunday, and you drag your family here, and you drag your friends here, and by faith and by an act of obedience, you're here on Sunday, even with a wavering faith, and you stand with the people of God, and you sing timeless truths about who God is, and you hear timeless truth 
being preached about who God is, and you hear timeless truth about God being prayed about, that does something to your soul. That when you stand with the people of God as we gather, and you look around at young and old, and you hear the people of God sing praises, that, that the people, young and old, who are declaring, this is what I believe. This is where my joy is. This is where satisfaction is found. That encourages you like nothing else will. That does something. When you look around and you see hundreds of other people declaring that God is our refuge, that God is our strength, that is something that you cannot get on your own. And, and I'll just be honest with you. I mean, there are, there are times on Sunday for me when I'm struggling to draw near to God, and I look around, and I see a man like Bill Armstrong, who's been walking with the Lord for decades, and I, and I look around, and I see, I see a teenager like Caleb Gates or Austin Snively, young and old, and I see them singing praises to God. That does something to me. That encourages me as I look around, and I see the people of God saying, this is the confession of our hope. That encourages me. That stirs something up in me. But man, when we're baptizing people last week and we are hearing testimonies of people being transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his son, that stirs something up. And when we pray over people like Paula Gates and Christy Bishop, who are sharing the gospel in elementary schools, in Fishers, and in Carmel every single week, that stirs something up in me to do good works. Now look, there's something that we can experience as the people of God gather, that listening to some podcast by yourself, you just can't get. And so if, if I could just encourage all of the lilies out there, that if you're wondering, why should I gather? Why should I meet with the people of God? That the Lord himself has prescribed a way to encourage our hearts in the times of doubting, in the times when we are wrestling with sin, in the times when we're losing more battles with temptation than winning, and we gather with God's people that we experience his presence in a unique in a special, in a different way that you just can't get on your own. And when we do gather as the people of God, as we ought, that we put on display the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we not only proclaim the gospel, but as we meet and as we operate as the people of God should, that Lord willing, Fishers and Noblesville and Geist and the surrounding community should look on and see something different in us as we put the gospel on display. And so my, my question for you, that as we, as we close, do you think about our gatherings in that way? Do you anticipate God's presence in that way? Do you look forward to being encouraged, to being provoked to love and good works in that way when you wake up on Sundays. See, in just a few minutes, the 100th running of the Indy 500 will take place. And I know many of us are looking forward to that. But you think about it, there, there will be 
between a quarter of a million people to 400,000 people who will gather and they will observe a bunch of guys just driving around in circles today, okay? And, and just think about this for a moment. That those people have been looking forward to that event for some time. That they, they have an expectation as they arrive at that event to experience something with thousands of other people. And, and when I think about that, it, I, I can't help but, but think about heaven, That will there be hundreds of thousands of people gathering, not not to watch a bunch of guys driving in circles, but to worship and to experience the presence of the living God. And when I think about that, and I think about that amazing reality, and I think about that our gatherings every week is a taste and a glimpse of that future reality I just wonder if, if we could have that type of expectation every week like so many will have today at that event. That what if we had that type of leaning in to what God has for us each and every week like the thousands have today when they experience the Indy 500? What would that do to our gatherings if we woke up on Sunday and we're like, man, I cannot wait to meet with the people of God. Almost on Saturday night, we, I cannot wait to hear what God has to say to me because his word is alive and it's active and it's going to shape me and it's going to shape the people of God. Can you imagine if we had that type of expectation, that type of leaning in to what the spirit of God has for us, just like many will have at the the Indy 500 today? Man, I I pray for that. I, I want our church to have that type of expectation that what we do here on Sundays is unique and it's special and it's different because we, the people of God, are pressing in to the presence of God and it's unique and it is different. I'm thankful that we get to encourage each other when we gather. And, And I know today, just in this season of life, just being aware of just so many needs that we have in our congregation even as I mentioned at our members meeting, that there, there are just more and more issues just kind of coming up and, and praise the Lord that people feel that this is a safe place to kind of confess sin and just to say, look, I, I'm not doing well. I need prayer. And, and praise the Lord that we get to encourage one another on Sundays. And, and that's exactly how I want to end today. And so we want to spend time just praying for one another as we go through this life and as we go through so many unique and different challenges. And so if I could just ask you just to, just to bow your head today and just, just to close your eyes. I just want to ask for, for those of you who are here today and, and you would say, Chris, I, I am going through a season of life that is difficult. That I, I feel as though that I'm wavering I feel as though that it is, it is difficult to draw near. If that describes you, could you just raise your hand today? If that describes it, I just need prayer. I just need encouragement. I just need, I need something to, to help me not waver in my faith. You can just raise those hands high. I'm not going to call on you. I'm not going to have you fill out any paperwork. I just want to take a moment and just pray for you today. That if you're going through that type of season where you just need prayer and encouragement, Let me just pray for you 
uh, as we close our service. And as we do, we're going to have people up here towards uh, the front, off to the sides, that would love to pray with you uh, personally. But let me just close with prayer. God, I thank you that you know each and every story of the, the people who have their hands raised. God, I thank you for their willingness to just raise their hand and say, say, I need encouragement today. And I'm going through a season of life that is difficult. I feel like I'm wavering in my faith. God, I just pray for those individuals this morning. Lord, I pray that you would unleash your grace in a special and a unique way today. Lord, I pray that you would massage their hearts with your love. God, that you would flood their lives with your presence. Lord, I pray that whatever they're going through, that you would you would flex your power and your might in their lives, God, that you would meet them exactly where they are and just provide mercy, to provide strength and encouragement through your spirit today. So God, allow them to sense you in a unique way this morning, even as we sing your praises. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.